1: Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. Peter, Dom, Tomer, Jacob. Good morning. How are you guys? Happy Friday.
2: Happy Friday.
3: Uh, happy Friday. Hey, Peter. Thanks for ruining my life with Stack Join, dude. Whatever, dude. Uh, Sam, I didn't even realize it was Friday until I popped in and I saw that you were the host. I went, oh, it's Friday. (laughs) They all blend in together for you, Peter. Well, when you're retired, every day is a Saturday,
1: except for Mondays. Must be nice. Must be nice. When you're retired, going to war with FinCEN on the daily, the days just blur together. (laughs) So this is how you spend your
3: uh, retirement, Peter? It's fighting the powers that be. Um, as a matter of fact, I think that's how I've spent my entire life. It started out very young. I used to fight my parents all the time. So yes.
0: When did you cut your first mo- mohawk, Peter?
3: I never did a mohawk, but I do have a reverse uh, friar tuck currently.
1: Mickey, good never morning. too
3: late for a mohawk, Peter.
1: <laughs> hey, good morning. I guess uh, congratulations is in order on the new job. Congrats, my man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Start uh, after Christmas, I guess. So you're moving. You're a minor now. Did they give you like a hard hat when you joined? Yeah, there's, there's a class. Have you, have you seen that walking scene from, uh, what was it, Zoolander, where he's walking down the mines with
0: the with the hard hat and the light and the pickaxe? So there's, there's sort of a, a class like
1: that, so you get the, the strut correct. I think I, I saw somebody, I think it might have been BTC Session, was that for Halloween. It was one of the best costumes I saw. It was a bitcoin miner but it would look like Zoolander. Do you guys see this ledger hack? Did you guys talk about this? Did
3: you, you see it? Yes, I did, but you do realize that the only thing that the only wallet that got compromised was the eth wallet. So if you held eth, it was drained. I'm sorry. Not really. It spooked a lot of people you know ledger is very popular
1: hardware wallet and they just saw that it was hacked and they were like oh my gosh not another hack but it turned out to be just a malicious version of the ledger connect kit which is what all these like dapps connect to and so if you were dabbling in any of these you know dapps or, or defi that connected to ledger it was potentially compromised and there was like a drain uh, but this is why we recommend Bitcoin and self custody, and also, also multi sig. So, like when you have multi sig, specifically you have different hardware wallets in that multi sig scheme, uh, you would have been pretty insulated from anything like this. So, it's just another example, I think.
4: It feels like so long since we've been talking about dApps and and DeFi hacks. Uh, like, I honestly can't remember with any sense of recency the last time we were talking about these things. But, you know, DeFi was all the rage, I guess, back in 2020, 2019. I'm trying to remember when. I, and and these attacks, these drained attacks, you know, some dApp got drained or some dApp got hacked or rugged. That was like the, it was almost like a daily news item. And now, you no, know, we haven't talked about decentralized apps, right? Like there's been no exciting new apps that have come out with, all the all the hype has moved on, and I think I think to me, what's really interesting about this is these narratives that don't have lasting power don't last. They change and they get forgotten, and and they don't they tend not to come back. What comes back is something entirely different that's that's a new narrative that won't last, and it's up to people to figure it out and discover it. But uh, w- when I saw the headline, I'm like, oh, there's there's still people using DApps. I didn't mean don't mean that sarcastically. It's like I, I'd forgotten that these things had existed.
1: DApps is always like a misnomer too because it's not really decentralized. Ironically, a lot of these DApps were just multisigs, but the you know the founding team held the keys. <laughs> they were just like these multisig schemes, and I just saw like yearn was one of the most popular ones back in the day, and they just like accidentally swapped their entire treasury. Yesterday, and then they kindly asked for you know the people to return the funds after they basically fat keyed it and swapped their entire treasury, and that's what can, what can happen when you have these quote unquote decentralized applications uh, in DeFi, uh, which aren't really decentralized at all. You're still depending on these companies to manage the, the keys. Only. Yeah, exactly. You know, so decentralized and name only. Yeah. Just gotta get to think your that yeah. yield bro. I get, get that, that yield. yield. Man, those were crazy times. When there was like yield farming, there was like yams and all these different vegetables and everyone was going nuts. That was like peak bull market. Peter, you got your hand up?
3: Yeah, I wanted to say that, you know, the reason that we use Bitcoin only wallets or excuse me, um, um signing devices that are made by uh, Bitcoin companies that only Um, deal with Bitcoin is because it minimizes the attack surface. And when you start introducing other uh, uh, chains into uh, a a a signing device, it just increases the attack surface. Um, And so it makes it uh, more risky. And, you know, Bitcoiners, understand scarcity bitcoiners understand the fact that uh bitcoin is the most valuable thing known to humans and they understand that it needs to be secure whereas when you're dealing with shit coins they can be mined the code can be chained etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't think the engineers are as concerned about security
0: this is the reason i'm always telling people especially in my personal life to use bitcoin only products you know, I mean, bugs can happen in any software, unfortunately. But, I mean, at the same time, I mean, think about how many re- how much resources these companies have to, you know, s- expend to support these shitcoin networks, which are fallacious to begin with. Yeah, but if it was secure, how would they rug
5: pull you?
1: I think this is just... You know, this is part of the reason why Swan Vault to have another collaborative custody solution out there. When you are playing around in DeFi, I mean, you give up your security. I mean, if you want to like, play those games, I mean, there's so many hacks. I think there's been over like a billion dollars worth of hacks throughout. And the majority of those are through um over the last couple of years. And so you're always taking that risk when you when you play around there and try to like get these yields or play those games um, you can get rugged at any moment and think of that feeling i would i would like to have a thought experiment where you go to your metamask wallet or whatever wallet you're using and you just see the balance zero 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 and you have no idea what happened you should be trying to prevent that like that should be your number one goal (laughs) trying to prevent that scenario from playing out and the easiest way to do that is to stay bitcoin focused take self-custody and make sure that your security is right.
4: And Sam, that, and that's not really that hard to do, right? It's 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 FAFO, right? It, it's when you start messing around that you find out uh, that playing that playing games le- can lead to bad outcomes. Right? Like Bitcoin is Bitcoin is built to be self custodied, and it's easy to self custody it. And as as long as you're not, you know, falling for some age old uh, trick, like entering your 24 word seed phrase online to a phishing email or something like that, no one can touch your, no one can touch your Bitcoin. And it's a simple thing, right? There's nothing fancy. You don't have to stake it. You don't have to deposit it. You don't have to co-sign it. You, you just, you don't have to do anything, and you can hold on to it, and then the the rest of crypto is all these things that you have to monitor and watch and trust and and play games. And so, I I think there's like the as we enter this new bull market, which it really feels like it's coming, the biggest piece of the education continues to be Bitcoin, not crypto. What is the difference between Bitcoin and the three thousand different flavors of things that claim to be like Bitcoin that try to say that Bitcoin is crypto, but it it's its own thing it's a very different it's a very different thing and and even now i think with all of these things that are on bitcoin but they're still not bitcoin the, whether it's jpegs or uh, tokens or all these other things that are on bitcoin they're they're not bitcoin and they're very, they very they utilize different technology they may rely on bitcoin for some part of their technology but for the most part they're something entirely different and so they have this larger attack surface, as Peter pointed out, or other vulnerabilities which haven't yet been disclosed or vulnerabilities that have been disclosed or value propositions that don't make sense. So I feel like I'm, I could ramble on this for forever. i just like, stick with Bitcoin and you, know, you can know what you're getting. Play other games and find out that you didn't know what you were getting.
6: I
0: mean, this is a warning shot, yet another one from Ledger. And yeah, if you didn't participate in DeFi apps or what, dApps and you're there just sitting in Bitcoin with your ledger and woo, didn't get you this time, this time. Like this is a warning shot. It's time to take a look at this. Why are you supporting or allowing a shitcoin company to hold your Bitcoin? Or the keys or whatever, however you want to you know, accurately say it. Take this weekend. Get a Sparrow wallet. Make it work with your cold card. Get a cold card if you don't have one. Make it work. And then when you have it ready, do a send and receive operation. Get it out of that ledger, man.
1: Speaking of uh, chick coins, You know we have multiple lawsuits with the SEC, with Kraken and, and Coinbase for basically being unregistered. Uh, broker-dealers of, uh, of these unregistered securities. And Joe, you sh- just shared me like a statement of denial of the rulemaking petition submitted on behalf of Coinbase. You know, Chair Gary Gensler uh, put out something this morning, a statement uh, denying their-, their potential rulemaking. Can you maybe break that down a little bit for us? Sure. Good morning, everyone. Um,
7: so, fairly important um Uh, development today that we got from uh, the SEC, as you may recall, Coinbase filed a petition uh, to seek rulemaking, which is a formal process, uh, basically to try to get uh, clarity on the quote unquote, you know, crypto space and the existing laws and what what applies to the sale and the custody and what applies to what assets are qualified as um, investment contracts uh, and effectively, there was a delay in the SEC's time to respond. Coinbase brought the SEC to court. The court was kind of lecturing the SEC, like, listen, why can't you just respond to the petition? Are you going to deny it? Are you going to give more guidance? you need clarity? And there was some uh, speculation among the more you know, crypto-friendly lawyers that uh, there would, in fact, be additional guidance that would come. Well, once again, the SEC never fails to disappoint. Um, they uh, filed a response saying, no, uh, they deny the petition saying we don't need to respond to this. And they informed the judge promptly with the PACER docket I was just checking. Um, basically what it means is that they, you know, they they state in this statement here that we don't need to issue a new set of rules. There are rules in place. Uh, the rules have been applicable for decades. And regardless of the underlying est- instrument, they say if crypto asset securities are in fact sold. Uh, existing securities framework applies. They also cite in both the statement and the rulemaking petition the actions they filed against Coinbase, uh, Kraken, and Binance um, with respect to their registration status and their ability uh, to uh, uh, sell crypto asset securities as broker dealers and operate as clearinghouses. You know they take once again their firm position that these entities are not properly registered and cannot. Uh, engage in those activities without such registration. Uh, so, you know, it's not a change or departure from the SEC's current position. That's been set forth for, you know, months now since they filed their case uh, cases against uh, Coinbase. And I'm told there are others coming as well, um, particularly ones against, um, well, I won't say which entities, but I think there are big major exchanges that will face additional suits in the coming months. Uh, so, you know, that's something to just consider that basically if you're selling um, Un-unregistered securities you're selling in, uh, them through the market. The SEC is taking a position. You need licensure from them and proper registration statements. So I think the only real surprise here is that it took them so long to deny the rulemaking position. When you know why? Why wait so long just to issue? Well, our policy is clear, and it's been clear for years, which is what this effectively says. Um, so you know that's that's the general update. No change in in the position. No softening towards this and. Certainly no indication that, there is, that there's a resolution of the litigation against the exchanges
1: anytime soon. Thanks for that recap. Yeah, it's, it's always been about the rules surrounding these you know, cryptocurrencies, whether they should adhere to the securities laws from the 1930s and the highway test. And Coinbase will turn around and say, no, this is new technology. We need new rules. And they actually came up with their own rules, the the Crypto Rating Council, which is like a consortium of companies that came together as a framework to kind of like rank uh, or basically score these assets based on if they should be considered an investment contract. So Coinbase basically made up its own rules and then started to list these tokens based on their own rules. And they basically were deciding, hey, does this fit an investment contract? Does this not and this was, list, this was kind of mentioned in the SEC's lawsuit against Coinbase, this Crypto Rating Council, of how this doesn't, um, this doesn't work for us. Like, we, you need to apply old rules. You can't just make up your new rules and say that you're doing proper due diligence before you list these tokens. Because even under your new rules, Coinbase listed, quote-unquote, high-risk assets, even with their own Crypto Rating Council framework, and so this has been at the heart of whether Coinbase should be you know, found guilty of being an unregistered broker-dealer. Should they adhere to these old rules or create their own new rules? And they obviously want the SEC to make the new rules so that they're not culpable of all these other things. So, um, So the SEC basically didn't change its stance, correct? And so... Well, I thought there there is an interesting
7: line in his uh, statement. I don't know if you caught it or got through it, Sam, but I love the the line where they say, while the crypto market experiences outsized fraud, abuse, and noncompliance relative to its size, it is nevertheless a small portion of the bigger than $110 trillion capital markets. It's important that the commission maintain discretion to direct focus to whichever parts of the capital markets need updated regulation. So basically saying like, this thing's just too small and not important for us to even devote resources to at this point.
1: I heard that from Gary Gensler in a recent interview too, where he was like getting annoyed that he kept getting asked about ETFs and crypto because he was like, "Are we talking about the Treasury market or are we talking about this tiny, you know, tiny industry in the broader capital markets? Like, shouldn't we be talking about the Treasury market?" Like, you could see he was getting annoyed yeah because
7: it's all he ever gets asked about because it's like you know the uh, sort of a more of a pop culture news item most people don't care about like clearing houses and liquidity in the treasury market they're just like ah, it doesn't matter i want to know what what's going to happen to doggy coin um so like you know from i i think it's it's fascinating that he's kind of pestered by it and uh, i think it does show you you know it's consistent with the folks i talked to in dc which is just like yeah most people don't care about this space like even bitcoin they're just like Whatever it's you know a digital pet rock we don't really think it's important and that, that is that is a common view guys of like lawmakers and, and regulators they think it's kind of just
1: trivial. I wonder what's the hard stance then against like the ETFs then like why why have they dug their heels in so hard then if they think well, it's just they're, small- they're they're going to let them through what do you mean yeah.
2: You mean in the past?
1: Yeah, I mean in the past, just like over the last 10 years. The answer to that... Had to
2: let futures run
1: for a while.
7: The answer to to, to why is very, very simple. Uh, So the reason they didn't want to allow the Bitcoin ETF, in my opinion, to come through stems from the fact that if you apply 6B5 to permit virtually any market without any sort of clarity on the spot market to be uh, greenlit for etfs it opens the floodgates for virtually any type of etf you could have an etf theoretically for very liquid baseball cards come to market where there's no clarity in the collectibles market as to what the price exchange prices of the baseball cards Um, it will open the door to basically an etf for any structure so they tried to apply this heightened standard where there has to be some you know Clearing activity, some surveillance sharing agreements with the underlying marketplace, so that they can basically have some type of discretion to deny it. And I arguably this is the biggest problem with green lighting the Bitcoin spot ETF. If you're gonna say that we can we can let this through because effectively we believe it's sufficiently robust of a marketplace and it's global, and even though we don't have surveillance sharing agreements in place with, with most of the major exchanges outside the United States then why, what is the basis for denying a Dogecoin ETF or a Litecoin ETF or an Ethereum ETF um, or any other new token that comes to market? And that's going to be the biggest in- issue. I think they're trying to develop a policy that gives them some discretion, uh, trying and failing, though. You don't feel
2: there's enough Terrence, go for it. You don't feel, Joe, that there's enough evidence that Dogecoin and these other coins, <clears throat> they're far less liquid and they're far more manipulated than Bitcoin?
7: Well, again, they're, the SEC said in court, in the appellate court case, their job is not to prevent manipulation. They said that. That's their view. Okay, Their job sure. is to have the tools to detect manipulation And come in after the fact with proper enforcement, and you know it makes logical sense, right? Like in every commodities market, Mm. in every securities market, there is quote unquote manipulation. I mean, we know this in very well developed markets. It's common. You go into these rooms all the time, and people preach about how gold is manipulated, right? And there's been actions that have been brought against major banks uh, regarding you know influencing the price of gold, but and other precious metals. But the point is, like, if you have tools in the form of surveillance sharing agreements, you can share that information and you could come in after the fact. So, again, like, the problem is that the liquidity in the marketplace, there's no basis in the Exchange Act to deny an ETF application because a market is, quote, unquote, illiquid. I mean, there are ETFs that trade real estate, right? And and the real estate that is traded is extremely illiquid, you know? So, like, the liquidity of the marketplace is in a basis for distinguishing.
2: Yep. I, I just feel like it seems like they can detect manipulation in Bitcoin now that they've cleaned up all the wash trading in Bitcoin with these Chinese exchanges <clears throat> either um, being more more regulated or having insiders at Binance or just uh, because of the threat of enforcement or whatever the fake volume seems to have gone down a lot and and FTX has gone or or you know operating under in a much more compliant way much smaller um but with these other coins well, well hang, hang on a so second so to be yeah go ahead hang on. you've
7: got you've got okx buybit kucoin mm-hmm. gate.io You still got some traffic on, you know, a handful of others. Like, you know, I mean, you have to, there's a lot of exchange. If you, in the aggregate, there's a lot of activity that even Mm -hmm. if you take out Binance, which again, there's no monitoring at Binance right now, still, um, that has not been completed and won't be completed until May of next year. So that that just to, I mean, I don't know how you're, maybe you can give me some information as to how you know that the wash trading is gone.
2: I'm not saying i no, for sure, but the volume has w- went down before the ordinal stuff, right? Um, the all the, vo- the volume on Binance and other um Chinese exchanges, I believe, went down a lot. Um, after the DOJ and SEC actions against some of these, these uh, no, um, that's insanity. not Binance has uh. Pretty, okay. Well, we Binance kind of to
7: has top up trading volume to this day. It's got. It's go look on like you know if you
2: go with trust it the won't back market, up because of the, maybe because of the bull market. But when we're when we're flat, when we're in a sideways market. Um, I saw multiple charts that showed that the the trading volume on Binance and other exchanges went down quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, which they, it goes up and down. That the last trade, yeah it yes. goes up and down
7: i mean it's not static right but but if you just check right now the 24 hour trading volume finance right now is 20 and I, this is all crypto right this isn't just bitcoin so we don't we need to distinguish mm-hmm. but Binance's uh 24 hour trading volume is 14 billion dollars per spot the closest one is an exchange i don't even know what this is it's a, a e, ueex mm-hmm. exchange and then indo exchange is third it's weird they're probably
2: controlled by cz or justin sun coinbase
7: right now in terms of 24-hour trading volume is, is uh one two three four five six seven they had 2.3 billion in the last 24 hours
2: so i guess my question is with the surveillance sharing agreements um and these ETFs. How how does the SEC get comfortable that there's they can detect fraud in these Chinese exchanges that still exist and have significant volumes as you pointed out um, before May? Like if Finance doesn't even have monitors until May.
7: Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I mean
2: it. I think you know uh, the only justification
7: you could say for what changed is well you lost in court. And uh, they, were, they were successful, Grayscale was successful in convincing the court uh, that because there's a 99% correlation between futures and spot, and, and because futures are uh, so tied and you thought futures were appropriate, isn't it discriminatory, effectively, isn't it arbitrary and capricious for you to approve futures but not spot? The problem with that is that you know, the SEC shot themselves in the foot when they allowed the futures ETF to come to market, because it is, it is logically inconsistent. If you're saying there's a problem with the spot market and the spot market is linked inextricably with the spot with the futures market, how can you say futures are appropriate but not spot? Um, I would say that they would have won the case had they not approved the futures ETF. The futures ETF is what gave you know the, the the grayscale folks the the real you know hammer to say they're just being unfair and they just don't like Bitcoin. That's what Gary
1: Gensler said too. It's, you know. Basically the courts have forced us to reevaluate our decision. And we're ultimately um, under direction from the courts. So he kind of mentioned similar to what Joe was saying, you know, they lost that case and now they have to reevaluate. This whole thing around like in kind versus cash redemptions in the ETFs oh, has been really brilliant. interesting.
7: It's so yeah. brilliant. It's such yeah. a it's such a way to screw grayscale. I love it.
1: Yeah, so I learned this actually from Bob Elliott, who was recently at Swan Signal. He he has an ETF uh, firm, and I learned that there's like a, a lot of tax advantages uh, for being a sponsor of an ETF on the back end. You know, when they run strategies, the underlying assets of the ETF, when they trade them, those are non-taxable events. Um, but that's if they are in kind. So if they're in cash. Um, basically, whenever they make creations or redemptions, that would be in a taxable event. And so in the case of a Bitcoin ETF, um, it would kind of make it less tax efficient for these sponsors to have a Bitcoin ETF if they have to have a taxable event every time they create or redeem um, the Bitcoin. So it would be it would be a lot less efficient for them but also it has consequences for the shareholders of the ETF because huge consequences if they can't yeah if they can't redeem the bitcoin actual the bitcoin usually that's a tax free in kind distribution but if if it has to be converted into cash then you know it forces shareholders to pay capital gains tax whenever they have to redeem that bitcoin or they try to redeem that bitcoin from the ETF and so it basically creates tax consequences.
7: You, so, um, yeah. just to give you an idea of this, Sam. Um, so, I, somebody provided me a breakdown of the of the Bitcoin that was purchased below current spot price um, that Grayscale holds. And if you assume that this does go through, which is a big caveat that they're not allowed in kind redemptions, they're talking about somewhere between two point six. And two point nine billion dollars in taxes that have to be paid, which means that upon conversion of the GBTC, it will still very likely trade at a significant discount.
4: Joe, I, I mean, I think I think maybe take a, if you could take a minute or, or Sam to explain exactly what 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 this means in terms of the, of the process that people are going through. Although I think you have. Uh, you have hinted at it, but when you you made a big statement, Joe, like what a great way to screw GBTC. So I think if you could just go through the mechanics, but I I also think like people should understand what this means. Like this is one of the big differences between buying an ETF potentially and buying real Bitcoin, right? It's like, oh, the ETF is going to track the price of Bitcoin and Bitcoin is going to track the price of Bitcoin. But when it comes to wanting to do something with it, the e t f if it has to be sold for cash capital gains you know then then received as cash, and then if you want to use it as bitcoin, you have to buy bitcoin again, whereas with bitcoin it is Bitcoin, and if you want to use it as bitcoin, you can use it as bitcoin if you want to sell it for cash, you can but so just to rewind the, the, these, distinction, these regular of, distinctions these yeah. distinctions have a big deal make make a big impact
1: yeah i mean if an e t f uses cash for creations and redemptions, the fund has to buy and sell the Bitcoin, and each time that's a taxable event, and so it complicates GBTC because they have a they hold a lot of Bitcoin already, and they acquired that Bitcoin at such a low cost basis. I mean, James Seaford over at uh, Bloomberg estimates that their cost base is around eleven thousand, and so if they convert to an ETF and it's a cash only model, every time they sell that Bitcoin, because Bitcoin's now at forty thousand, they'll have to pay the capital gains every time they have to so just sell explicitly that does
4: this explicitly mean if if gbtc wants to convert to an etf they have to technically sell all their bitcoin and buy it back uh to no, could no, no 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 not no, all no. of it no 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 so
1: no that would
7: be hilarious so can, can tomra just to, sam's exactly right but just to add some little context logistically on how to how this actually occurs so What's the big problem with the GBTSD trust? Like, why do, why do we have why do we have issues with it? Why does anybody have issues aside from the fact that you should hold your own Bitcoin um, in cold storage, hold your own private keys? The, the, the real issue with it is because you have these wide, number one, the fees are high, but number two, um, you have these wide fluctuations between the net asset value. What is that? That's just a fancy financial way of saying, like, the things that they hold are worth a lot more than the share prices. And the reason people like ETFs More than closed end trusts is that the share prices more closely reflect what they're holding. Okay. For example, if they hold, um, like, you know, just make a math simple if they hold $20 billion worth of Bitcoin, okay, the the market cap and the the value of the shares of the trust should equal $20 billion. They shouldn't equal $18 billion, right? It shouldn't trade at a discount to what they hold. The reason why you have the problem with the trust structure that's closed-ended is that it's hard for them actually it's not permitted for them to sell on a regular basis bitcoin to bring the share price in line with the nav okay so that's that's the problem they can't sell bitcoin uh, other than to pay fees they can't redeem shares uh, other than in their discretionary way so you have these wild fluctuations where Trades at a significant premium and trades at a significant d- discount, and what the ETF is will do is will allow them to be regular buyers and regular sellers in order to bring the share value closer to the net asset value. So it gives you a more a direct proxy for the price. That's the key. So what? Why is this a problem for them? Well, they they have a ton of Bitcoin, as Sam said, acquired at a much lower level, and to bring those shares in line with. Um, <laughs> uh the net asset value upon conversion what will they have to do they will have to sell bitcoin well that's not that much of a problem if they have to sell some bitcoin to bring the shares in line obviously if there's a bull run that'll be absorbed and it's not going to really hurt the price too much but it becomes more of a compounding issue if you have a ton of bitcoin i said like where you have to sell it and not only do you have to sell it you have to take some of that instead of just using it for the shares you have to use it to pay taxes billions of dollars potentially in taxes, which means that theoretically you'll still have a structural issue with your discount because you can't make up the gap as easily. Does that make sense?
4: It's actually pretty complicated uh, because I'm just trying to, so if GBTC converts to an ETF, and they're currently the the share price is let's say twenty per let's say ten percent just to make the numbers easy. It is a ten percent discount to the net asset value. They need to, and they're sell so they have to sell some Bitcoin in order to reduce the value of the net reduce the net asset value that's backing the units. And. I guess. And, and they do this based on... And buying some, shares.
7: They're buying shares, just so you know. That's how they so, do it.
4: So they they do it. They buy more shares in the ETF. Correct. And they, and they do that by selling Bitcoin so that they're bringing the things closer to one another. They have to use their average cost basis or some first in, last first out. Some They have to designate some accounting because they didn't buy all their Bitcoin at once. They bought it gradually. There's a bunch that got bought at at the huge bull market prices when people were trying to do the arbitrage trade and got burned. And there's lots that got bought many, many, many years ago at really low prices. But anything that they sell that is above their cost basis for it, there's a capital gains and they have to then surrender the capital gains tax associated with that. Are they not able to sell their more valuable bitcoin first or their most recently bought bitcoin first or
7: are there accounting rules that they that's, are forced into yeah that's a really good question i don't know if they could use specific identification um it's possible uh, i would want to look into that more but that's a really detailed question i don't i don't know um yeah but okay. but the 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 broad takeaway is they have to pay taxes that, that that make that
1: presents a lot of problems for them yeah and then like Just with the conversion, they'll have to kind of pay those taxes as well as they sell some of the Bitcoin to get that uh, discount removed up to NAV. But then as it continues, like I was trying to mention before, like one of the superpowers of an ETF is the tax efficiencies for the sponsor. And so if it was in kind, they would just kind of trading Bitcoin around. And every time a shareholder wanted to redeem Bitcoin, they would just pay out the Bitcoin. Those would just be trades. They wouldn't be taxable events if they were just continuing to trade around Bitcoin. But now, if every time they have to sell into cash, you know that creates a tax consequence uh, for the sponsor. But then also, when the shareholder redeems the Bitcoin, they don't receive Bitcoin. That Bitcoin gets changed into cash, and then they have a capital gains tax as well when they're trying to redeem it instead of a tax-free in-kind, aka in Bitcoin distribution. So it's just it's a less tax-efficient way to have these structured. And I don't really know why uh, the SEC is pushing for this. It seems like all of the ETF applications are changing to an in-kind uh, creation and redemption model or in-cash redemption and creation model. And I don't really know what the purpose of that is uh, from the SEC standpoint. Because, um, I mean, Bitcoin's digital. It seems like it would be easy to do and it would be a more efficient way to structure these things but I don't know if anybody has a theory of why the SEC would want an in-cash creation and redemption model, but it seems like that is a hard line that they're not willing to cross in these conversations with the ETF filers. Money laundering, probably. Money laundering?
7: Yeah. I mean, that makes the most sense, right? Because if you're you're doing in-kind, anybody with Bitcoin can clean their money by clean their Bitcoin uh, by, by going through the ETF for an in-kind redemption. So if you, force them to purchase Bitcoin with cash through registered you know, uh, entities. Uh, the, the KYC aspects of it and AML are taken care of. So you don't have, you know, if you're forcing cash purchases, they can control what Bitcoin specifically is purchased for the ETF. That's, that makes the most sense logically. And also
1: to screw Grayscale. <laughs> yeah, screwing Grayscale. I want to put it past them to screw Grayscale. <laughs> They're probably a little bit a little salty. <laughs> probably a little salty about that.
2: salty but also um grayscale did an end run right around etfs by launching this horrible trust with two percent annual fees no liquidity and ridiculous um discount to nav so why would you reward their behavior right they should be at the end of the line the, the back of the line not get converted or not get an etf first but they might, they might be in the first batch. We'll
4: see. I don't want to sound like an apologist for GBTC, but they started a long time ago when this would have been the only way if you, hadn't. Yes. you had registered funds to hold. And and it ended up trading at a premium for many years. Right? A which lot of people
7: then
2: got caught up. ridiculous bubble.
7: Yeah, which, which by the way, I think is far worse than the discount. The premium was really just, in my, my opinion, very... Uh, bad for folks when you're buying something. Oh, at, I mean, think about it. Like you're, you're you're forcing people to spend more above market rate for for Bitcoin than what it was. I mean, a discount. It's like you're getting stuff from on the cheap, effectively, right? And it's annoying for long term investors. But the fact that you had to buy Bitcoin, like I think at one point, wasn't it, Terrence, like a thirty percent premium, like some insane amount?
4: Yes. It's it was.
7: And, you know, that that
4: premium is what led to a lot of the blow ups. It's what led to these companies that claimed that they could pay uh, a yield on Bitcoin, because what they were doing was you would give them your Bitcoin. They would use the Bitcoin in kind to get units at at net asset value in the GBTC trust. And then six months later, when the units vested, they would sell at a 30 percent premium, effectively making a 60 percent return. 60% A 60% annualized return, right, or 30% in just six months. Um, and and then they would pay some of that yield out. But then when the, that premium disappeared, and they were caught in the middle of that waiting period, that six month waiting period, and turned into a discount, they had no money left over to pay any premium. And that, that's, I think, what a big part of BlockFi and a lot of these other yield pro-
1: promises. three products, arrows capital,
4: three arrows capital, gem, like oh, you know, it was so. It, there was just a handful of entities, but they all got deeply intertwined with one another, and the accounting became quite silly. But but the real the real fundamental loss there was that premium got traded away and turned into a discount, and then all hell broke loose for people who were
1: exposed to that trade. I will say that. Um, you know i've heard from a lot of different etf filers or people involved that they kind of see this as you know the cash redemptions and creations they see it as like a baby step and all of them are favorable for any kind of etf to be approved and obviously they want it to be approved like they're incentivized for that so they have to say that but they they see this as like a baby step and that they could eventually figure out in kind creations and redemptions later on and so I just wanted to throw that out there because you know we've been kind of negative about the in-cash creations and redemptions, but there has been like kind of positivity around it that it's a step forward, it's a baby step to get them approved, and then we'll figure out in-kind later. I don't know what the probabilities of them allowing for in-kind after the fact is, but that's at least some of the messaging from from these ETF filers. I think
2: it depends on... Market demand. I mean, they want it to save taxes, but and save save on hassle friction, but yeah. A lot of it will be market demand driven. So if investors and market makers seem okay with it, then it's just they themselves putting pressure on the SEC to save taxes. Since they're charging the fee, if the market doesn't demand it, they probably don't care because they can pass on the costs if they feel like they can do that. Meaning there's not enough um, demand for real Bitcoin um, compared to the demand for Bitcoin ETFs. And
1: yeah. Yeah, the idea is that some kind of ETF approval is better than an outright denial, I think, and that they'll figure it out later. But, you know, all of this is to say that, obviously, we, we talk about the difference between Bitcoin and, and an ETF and all the advantages that Bitcoin has over it. You know, no counterparty risk, no fees. You don't have to worry about these uh, mechanisms of how the ETF works when you just hold real spot Bitcoin uh, in self-custody. So have to at least throw that out there because there's a big advantage between holding real Bitcoin versus, you know, paper Bitcoin like an ETF. But the ETF will probably pump your spot Bitcoin's bags. That's for sure.
7: And there is one other thing that is uh, really nice about it, is that if you happen to be someone of means with a significant spot Bitcoin holding, I expect the ETF options market to be far more liquid than that on BITO, which means that in certain bull runs, you can hedge very effectively with U.S. regulated exchanges in the form of options, which is how options are supposed to be used. They're not supposed to be used for some sort of YOLO you know, call option trade. They're supposed to be used to hedge underlying spot positions that you have.
1: Well, we will see how it plays out. Everyone's looking at January 10th um that's when i think the ark invest uh deadline is and they're out in front of all the other etfs so a lot of people are kind of have circled that date where they expect some kind of uh, decision to be made so we will see how this etf drama plays out i know a lot of people are um optimistic about it so to probably pivot away from it now I-, I wanted to talk a little bit about um well <laughs> another pivot because the fed pivot a lot of people think that the fed pivoted in the fomc meeting paul seemed to be very dovish in his comments talking about how we might be at the the peak of this hiking cycle and animal spirits went wild after his presser Uh, basically stocks ran up yields dropped incredibly so bonds rallied stocks rallied gold popped bitcoin popped uh markets just took it as a sign that you know the fed is done this is the pivot right here right now They might not up rates but they're going to cut rates again and the market really took that messaging to heart it seems like so i don't know we have dr jeff on here and and joe like do you guys think this was a, a pseudo pivot
5: i can jump in quick and then we'll get the real answer from joe by the way good morning everybody hope y'all are doing well um so I do think that uh Powell did uh what's considered a dovish pivot and um uh but I think they're retracting that already today right fed officials are out speaking this this morning and they're they're back to being hawkish again so I think they they uh, didn't like the response of the markets they don't want things to get too out of hand um, but what, so for the people in the audience, the difference between a dovish pivot from the Fed and a bearish pivot from the Fed, a dovish pivot is the Fed would lower rates because they basically, quote unquote, won the war on inflation. So inflation is coming down. It's, it's approaching their 2 percent uh, target. Um, they think that that's good and that's that's that that will stick. Uh, and uh, they, they they don't want to run the risk of having a too restrictive Uh, policy, meaning that they're holding the Fed funds rate much higher than underlying inflation. So they want to bring the Fed funds rate down. uh, So it's more commensurate with the current inflation rate. That would be considered a dovish pivot. Basically, they're not concerned about a recession. Uh, They're more concerned about being too hawkish, even though um, the, the war on inflation is over. That's a dovish pivot. A bearish pivot is what most people expect. And what's more way more common, uh, basically, they, they hold the rates high and then the the economy rolls over into a recession uh, and equities don't like that. Equities get pummeled and, and basically the markets um, uh, lock up. You can see some problems in bond markets and issues with liquidity. So what do they do? They, they quickly lower rates. Um, more out of a panic than out of uh, being in control. Uh, And then that's usually when they instigate more quantitative easing type practices in hopes of sort of uh, um, uh, helping the economy bottom more quickly and recover and start to move higher again. That's a bearish pivot. That's more common. That's what most people, I think, have been expecting to date. Um, A good example of this in China, they just did the largest liquidity injection ever, uh, I think, on a daily basis um, uh, yesterday. And, um, that is, uh, they're doing that bearishly. So that's, that's basically like they're, because they're so concerned about how terrible their economy is, they're injecting it with as much liquidity basically as possible in order to try to boost it and try to paper over, uh, lots of the issues they're having, especially in the real estate markets. Uh, Europe is, uh, practically if mo- lots of Europe is in a recession, other parts aren't, but in general, Europe is basically recessionary. They're continuing to be hawkish. Uh, that's generally not a good combination if you're into risk assets, so be careful in Europe. In the U.S., so we just got numbers out this morning. Uh, the PMI numbers came out. Services is still expansionary. It actually popped up a little bit, up to 51 Uh, uh, and the composite index is around the 51 level as well. Manufacturing continues to be in a contractionary mode. In fact, it slipped a little bit, um, but it's basically in the same rate. I I don't have it off the top uh, in front of me, but I think it was like 47 or so was their number, which means that they're contractionary or recessionary. U.S. manufacturing has been contractionary for over a year now, while services has yet to really uh, show any signs of contraction. It continues to be uh, kind of weakly expansionary because America is uh, predominantly services driven uh, as a country the services sector is what's more important and it's what holds up our economy in general. So because services continues to not be contractionary, we continue to not go into a recession. Uh, and then obviously unemployment numbers still remain significantly like very low, uh, historically. So all coming full circle. Um, uh, did the, did the fed pivot dovish? Yes. Are they retracting that a bit now? Yes. Um, one final point is that, um, Lots of risk assets, Uh, the things that I look at like tech stocks uh, and then Bitcoin, which is not a risk asset, but sometimes trades like one. Um, risk assets, especially these te- lots of tech stocks look very peaky right now. I'd be very concerned in the short term, like this is not a time to be plowing into risk assets, even though I think things look very bullish. Uh, I would not be surprised to see a, a kind of a bull market dip uh, in the near future. Uh, it, may, it may be starting uh, after today's over, so I, I'm not like bullish on next week. Even though things look good from a fundamental perspective, uh, things have gone too far, too fast. Bitcoin you know, reads the market, reads the crowd more quickly than stocks do. Uh, That basically peaked last week, and it it has been rolling over. Bitcoin miners um, uh, continue to rip uh, CleanSpark, especially, and other ones like it, but I think they're also due for a pretty sizable pullback. So not great entry points for people who, if you've been sitting on the sidelines, I do think things are still bullish until proven otherwise. Um, once you're in a bull market, dips are for buying. So um, I would look for things to retrace a bit. And then I think we're going to reset some momentum indicators and have good buying points from the short-term perspective. And uh, sorry, I'm talking way too much. That was a really long answer to your question, Sam, but but lots of, lots of thoughts on what's going on today. I think uh, still bullish, uh, but due for a short-term pullback is, I guess, my synopsis.
1: That was a great summary, as always. My question is, why now? It doesn't it doesn't make sense to me because I read this uh, headline in Bloomberg, and it said the Fed is you know going to stop taking the punch bowl away, and so markets rallied on on you know the Fed's messaging at the FOMC meeting. But stocks are near all time high. The unemployment rates at multi decade lows. Still, you have nominal GDP at 5.2%. is still running hot. So why are they deciding to put the punch bowl back now? Like, it just it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I just don't understand why they would risk, you know, the animal spirits getting ignited again, which could be inflationary, right? And so why now?
5: I mean, my take on it is that it's not that they're basically – They're not easing, again, technically. What they want to do is basically go from hawkish to neutral, uh, but not to dovish, flat-out dovish. The markets are interpreting it as dovish. By the way, the one thing to consider right, is the last two times that we had a similar situation where we saw a peak in interest rates and then they started rolling over. and, and, and where conditions were similar, like we could be heading into a recession or not, we're back in the 2000 uh, to 2003 recession and the 2007 to 2009 recession. One thing to be aware of is it's possible that we're seeing the blow off top in risk assets right now, and that that's what this is, um, where everybody starts talking about soft to no landings. So just one thing to keep in mind, right? What happened in those last times is about two to four months after interest rates peak and and started rolling over, um, we had uh, stocks rip higher, especially tech stocks. Uh, Bitcoin wasn't around uh, back then, so we we can't see how it responded. But I imagine it would have gone higher um, based on how it performs currently. Um, So that is one thing to consider. If this is a blow off top, this could be like the big party before uh, the police come. So be careful for that scenario. If things go too far too fast, and one way that could happen in Bitcoin is that if we see a a spot Bitcoin ETF approval in the second week of January, I would expect that to be very positive, especially if it's been, if it's kind of, uh, um, you know, going sideways, trading sideways, choppy right now. If we get an approval, I would expect the price to shoot much higher. I would just say be careful unless it's supported by underlying liquidity measures. Um, uh, it's basically running on fumes and it would be due for a very significant pullback. So I'm sure, you know, I'll be on here blathering about that at the time. And just as everybody's feeling like bullish and ready to party, I'm going to try to rain on the parade and and tell you to be cautious for a bit in the short term. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I see Joe has your hand up. I'd love to hear his thoughts on it.
7: Yeah. I think there are two primary reasons why they're choosing now to sort of signaling their signal, they're done. Which again, as I think either Sam or Jeff pointed out, like, you know, they did have Williams out today saying, you know, there's, you know, talk of cuts are premature, but they, they do want to signal which their communications channel is the most impactful on the markets. It's not really about the actual rate policies. That's, that's such a lagging because cause when, you, when, you, when you hike or lower the overnight rate, it doesn't affect the vast majority of issuance. It takes time for people to have to roll debts. And that becomes a drag over time, you know, on, on various institutions. So if you have, just think of it very simply, if you have a, a ton of debt that is um, uh, financed at very low rates and it's out for two, three, four years and you hike or lower by 25 or 50 basis points, you're, you're sufficiently well protected. You don't have to roll that paper like overnight. And that's the window where really most companies borrow at. So, so what is driving it, to answer your question? The, the answer is two things. Number one, you know, in January we, and this is, I think the last meeting before January, um, you get the, uh, the new QRA, which is going to have to include more coupons um, versus short-term paper. And once that additional issuance comes to market, I think they, they don't want it to be locked in at like, you know, 4%. So you look at like where the five-year, where the 10-year, where the 20-year was at back at the end of October, substantially higher. And I think the bond traders are smart realizing that this was going to come and come because before the quote unquote pivot, you know, yields had fallen significantly. Um, you know, some parts of the curve had fallen like 50 basis points before even Powell spoke. Um, so they were very smart in sniffing this out. But I think the so, so the issuance is one reason you, you, you don't want to issue long-term paper at like, you know, 4% because it's so much more expensive uh, or five, excuse me, 5% because it was so much more expensive. Um, but the other issue that I think is, is, is driving is they, They're looking at real yields, right? Which even today, um, real yields are like just under 2%, uh, which is huge, right? With inflation coming down. And again, we're not talking about like, you know, consumer prices coming down. We're talking about the rate of change as the rate of change of consumer prices has slowed, right? But by definition with higher yields, they become higher nominal yields. They become more of a drag. So real yields are like 1.8, 1.5. they were, they were, over two uh, back at the end of uh, October, which is unbelievable, real yields above two. Um, And I think that that the Fed thinks that real yields being where they're currently at are going to be substantial drag on the economy, especially if you get more disinflation into the new part of the year. That combined with things like Zillow, I mean, the Zillow rents are telling you like nothing but disinflation on the horizon. Um, Whether they're right or wrong, I mean, I think that's what they're looking at. They're looking at the real yields.
3: I read an interesting article. You all know, I always kind of shift to uh, political narratives, mostly because I can't do math and keep up with you macro folks who are extremely intelligent. But I read an interesting article out of Bloomberg titled How the 2024 Swing State Voters Feel About the U.S. Economy in 10 Charts. And the economy was number one on the list. Uh, And it, it also showed that there was a, a natural lean towards Trump in being able to handle economic issues. So again, you know, I mean, it, there was some interesting data in there uh, about, you know, uh, past presidential voting trends and economic conditions.
1: I think Joe brings up a good point, which is the, uh, the treasury issuance, but it's just, it's just interesting to me because the Fed's supposed to be this independent entity. Um, and if they're being influenced by what the Treasury has to do, and that's kind of dictating their policy maneuvers, then, you know, what is actually going on here? Are they just the Treasury kind of in charge? I saw Janet Yellen earlier in the week. He, she sounded like a Fed chair. She talked about how inflation is coming down and how it's come down meaningfully, and it's not going to be hard for that last mile to get down from 3% to 2%. And, and you're just hearing this narrative from the Treasury that they kind of need rates to go down um, for them to start to kind of roll over some of their debt uh, over the next 12 months. And that really puts a question mark on how independent the Fed is. I don't think there's any question marks. <laughs> They're not independent. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, but they they kind of act like they are, you know. Well,
7: they kind of have to, right? Pretend,
1: you know. Yeah, pretending. So I think that's actually what's going on here. I think it's about the Treasury. It's about the debt. um, And they're trying to make it easier for them to issue more debt to fund these massive deficits uh, into 2024. And they're using the microphone. They're using the messaging to kind of bring down rates at the right time uh, for the Treasury. So that's what I think is actually going on. But you
7: also have had serious disinflation. I mean, it it is here, guys. Like, you can see it in the consumer prices. You can see it in in PPI. I mean, there is serious disinflation. Um, So I don't, you know, uh, you can't fault them for that too much.
1: Yeah, I do do think that could be part of it, too. Like, they're worried about uh, the lag effects and that we haven't seen it you know, it fully play out in the economy and they don't want to overdo it. And they're worried that they might've already done that. Um, so I think that's definitely part of it potentially. I well. mean, yeah, the way to think about it, I always think is like, what would you do? And
7: you, you, an answer, you can't have an answer to switch to a Bitcoin standard. Like assuming you're operating in the, in the existing framework, assuming you're Jerome Powell, like what would you do right here? When you see a lot of disinflation, you see a lot of slowing growth. Um, you know, it's not terrible. It's not terrible, but you do know that you've got some headwinds going into the next part of this year. You know, there's more issuance coming uh, from the treasury, which is going to weigh on a lot of asset prices. You're going, you know, you're going into a, a a period where consumers have expended most of the stimulus that they had post-pandemic by almost every survey. So like, what would you do? Would you continue to, you know, freaking pump the brakes and like, you know, maybe we smash the car into the wall or, or would you, you know, try to keep it going and try to, you know, not risk
1: some calamity. Yep. I did just find it hilarious that the focus returned to the, the Fed dot plot. Um, because it has zero predictive value whatsoever. And the Fed dot plot is just you know, the Fed officials get asked, you know, where they think interest rates are going to be over the next couple of years, and it's anonymous and it just it plots out all their forecasts. And um, it just just shows, like, their history of the dot plot is how wrong they've been. Like, in June 2021, the Fed dot rates would be near zero all the way through 2023. In December 2021, the Fed dot rates would rise less than 1% in 2022. Nine months later, um, they were forecasting about 4%. And so the dot plot is just, it just really should be viewed as the Fed officials really don't know where interest rates are going to be. Uh, because that's what the history shows us, so they say don't fight the Fed, but you can't really fight them was what I said because you don't even know the Fed doesn't even know what punches they're going to throw in the next twelve months. So how do you fight the Fed? And so the dot plot is just silly to me. Did you guys
6: talk about the fact
1: that um, I
6: mean even their messaging on this idea of cutting is is even hard to figure out what they're actually saying, and you have Powell on December 1st with a line that said, it's premature to talk about easing. Then you have Powell on December 13th, two days ago, the Wednesday meeting that obviously made a lot of news where he said, we're talking about the timing of easing. And then you have Williams also at the Fed today saying, we aren't really talking about it. Um, So it's hard to even make sense of what they're doing. Obviously, the market is uh, certainly taking it as if they are talking about easing. Like you said, Sam, they are valuing the dot plot. Um, That could potentially be a risky decision because, as you just outlined, Sam, the dot plot is not always an accurate forecast of where Fed Fund's rate actually goes.
7: Well, it's not. And if you ask them and they say this in their meeting minutes, the dot plot is not predictive and it never has been. The dot plot is supposed to be aspirational where they would like rates, where they would like interest rates to go, where they would like growth to go, et
1: cetera. It's not supposed to be a predictive tool. Yeah, that's why I just – it's almost like the market desperately wants to believe that rate cuts are on the horizon. So now they're like putting predictive value on the dot plot, and it's coming into the narrative. And maybe, maybe the market's kind of getting over its skis a little bit. That's kind of my take.
6: Does the Fed actually claim that the dot plot has no predictive value? Yes. I'm not sure about
7: – Yes, are you it's sure? in the minutes. You know, you know why? Because it's not a model. And it, it, is, it is literally the FOMC participants being surveyed, asking, where do you think this should go? So it's, it's, not, it's not like, uh, John, it's not like a model of, okay, here's where we're looking at Ford rate curves. Here's where we're looking at growth. where th- We have these projections. And where do you think, where is this going to go? You know, it's not like a model where we think it's actually it's the survey of the participants saying, where do they think rates will go? It's just kind of like a, a, an ask for rate. Of,
6: that's very confusing. It, if if it's where they think rates will go, then that is supposed to have some sort of predictive value, even if they slap a sentence in the minutes that says this doesn't have predictive value. If it's a statement of where they think rates should go, then that's just completely useless in my opinion because that's just like a wish list of where rates should be. That's, that's all very confusing.
7: Yeah, well, think of it like this. So, you know, there's the household survey on like, um, you know, the economy and like, is the economy in good shape or, and they ask consumer sentiment, like, you know, is, is it a good time to do this? Is it a good time to buy, uh, buy a house? That's not predicting in the future out whether it is in fact a good time to buy a house. It's a sentiment survey and that sentiment surveys can be accurate. They can be, you know, uh, sort of an early warning sign of bad things in the economy, or they can be, you know, um, uh, very wrong, right? Like the sentiment could be wrong. This could be a great time to buy a house. And, and that's that's basically what you're doing. You're taking the participants, and you're saying like, oh, so where do you think? What do you think about the economy? What do you think about growth? What do you think about inflation, et cetera?
6: But that, that would, it, is it a good time to buy a house right now is a point in time, current time concept. The dot plot literally has a f- future time horizons on it. So that, I'm not sure that's, the proper analogy here it's literally the fed officials saying at this point in time i again you know i'm 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 at, i'm half asking here are are they saying what they think rates should be years from now or are they saying what they yes. think rates will be but should be is, is open to a lot of interpretation it, the whole thing's
7: interpretation they they're trying so like and we were talking about this earlier john and i think you agree with this like their primary tool is not actually like rate cuts or you know, QE or these sort of, you know, things. It's all about manipulating the, the the public. It's about like convincing them about certain things, like convincing them to go long bonds or convincing them that hikes are coming. So bonds are shut should sell off. That's what they did. They caused a huge crash in the bond market because they said we're going, you know, hardcore into a hiking cycle. Um, and the market moved very quickly in response to that um, all throughout all of 2022. So it's like, like what it, what it, what it, it gives you insight into what they're thinking. They're thinking that this is what they think right now about you know, future rate hikes. It doesn't mean that that's actually going to happen. And we know, for example, that like, what they thought about growth for this year was totally wrong. What they thought about hikes was, was uh, somewhat accurate. What they thought about the labor market in the dot plot was also you know, completely inaccurate. They thought they were going to be at 4.75, 4.8 in unemployment. And didn't even come close to that. Uh, so, you know, like it's just a it's just basically musing.
6: Yeah, I mean, I get that there's some signaling that's done by the Fed. Um, I'm, I'm not fully in the Jeff Snyder camp that like the Fed does nothing and nothing they do matters and it's all jawboning. I think that's a bit too much. But I, I get that there's some signaling that goes on here. Um, I, I still think there's some predictive aspect to the dot plot. Um, I get, again, they're they're literally picking points in the future. It's a projection. So... I get that. Th- I mean, this is I think it also comes back to the fact that the Fed talks out of both sides of their mouth. I think it's almost like a disclaimer that they throw it in there and they say, oh, look, it's not predictive. It's not meant to be a projection because you can't model this stuff. I get it. But like everyone takes it as a projection. I believe they do u- even use the word projection. So <laughs> if they're telling us where if each person is supposed to put a dot at a future point in time of where rates are going to be, the, there's like some predictive element there, no matter how much they disclaim it. But anyway, bonds are hot right now. Um, I'm thinking of, I'm sw- I think I want to start a new company. Instead of Swan Bitcoin, I want to call it Swan Bonds. Um, we got a big reversal here. Who, uh, who thinks that's going to continue and for how long?
5: I like that. I think that's a winning business model, Sam. Uh, Swan bonds. I, I, I'll, I'll back you on that. Um, re- regarding interest rates and bonds, I actually think we're now in a more normal um, interest rate regime. So 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 there are people who think we're going to go back to the zero bound range uh in yields and I just don't think that's going to happen. I personally think that the 40-year bond bull market is officially over. Uh we may uh temporarily go lower, especially if we hit a recession, we're going to go lower for a bit. Um but I don't think we get down to the 0 to 1% range. I think I think this new normal is bond yields, when I'm talking like from the two to 30 year uh, yields, I think are going to be sort of in the maybe two and a half to 5% range. And I think that's very healthy, by the way, the, the, what we experienced over the last decade in the 2010s was not normal, nor was it healthy. All it did is it basically incentivized people to do really stupid stuff with free money. Uh, and so we, we're paying the, the piper for that this decade. And, I, and we still have more, um, more to go, I think, on payments. And so, like like overvaluations in across the board and equities. Uh, uh, and real estate and venture capital and crypto nonsense, they all got just wildly overvalued. And so they still have to work out a lot of slack in my opinion. And I think we're going to see that. And that's why we're going to have kind of a tumultuous choppy uh, decade in a lot of these prices. Um, so I'd be careful there. I, I like, uh, bonds here at these levels. I'm not a, a purchaser of bonds, although I will say, by the way, there are things that are interesting, things that, um, have not been interesting to me as a fund manager, for uh, since I started my business back in 2014 and started managing money professionally, I basically was not even interested at all in anything related to fixed income. And for the first time this year I am and we have sizable allocations. I think you can look at things like um, senior loans uh, and other kind of corporate credit and you actually get some pretty substantial yields that I think are are at this point worth the risk. So high yields. Uh, they can will they go down in a recession for sure, uh, but I would probably just buy more of them and lock in some higher yields. but if you can earn i think uh eleven twelve percent uh, with um, a first lien uh, adjustable rate loans uh, managed by great companies, I think that's a pretty good alternative to stocks uh and other bonds uh, and real estate and and things like that so but I digress. Hey, I'll,
6: I'll just say this before Peter and Joe go, just as a, a, a point of reference for the markets. All the major bond ETFs, so corporate bond ETFs, HYG, LQD, uh, short-duration treasuries, all the way to long-duration treasuries, they're all in positive territory now on the year. Um, that's kind of on the back of the moves for the past week or two. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there.
3: I was just going to say that bonds are way too complicated and volatile for me, so I'm just going to stick with Bitcoin.
1: All right, so we
6: don't have an anchor investor for Swan Bonds in Peter, but I'll see if anyone else is a taker. Joe?
1: Yeah.
7: Uh, so I think the, the spirit of your question is like, you know, where, what, what, what's the, for the future of the bond market here? Um, I think you have to look at like why in portfolio construction theory, why you want to hold bonds Um, and the reason why you would want to hold bonds, the the bull case for bonds historically has been a negative correlation with stocks, right? The idea being that when stocks sell off, the bonds should in fact rally and they should protect your portfolio with steady income streams. Okay, that that is the whole base case, so that you can effectively have something to use to rebalance and buy the dip in the riskier assets. The problem with this current bond market rally, which everybody's seen, is that you know when the bond market bottomed both in 2022 in October of 2022, and when it bottomed at the end of October this year, um, it was coincident to a stock market rally. And from a portfolio construction, when you have a positive correlation like that, when you have basically stocks and bonds are running together, they're, they're, they're either selling off together or they're rising together, it makes almost no sense in your portfolio to own bonds. Um, you, know, you, you should just own risk assets. If there's no negative correlation, if it's just a pure positive correlation, they're going to go up and down together. That's, it's, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, now, I, you know, I have some exposure to, to, to it, and I, I think that correlation returns to a negative correlation. But to do that, you have to have one of two things. Either you have to have a recession, which again does not appear likely in, on the horizon, um, or alternatively, I think you do get more signs of the negative correlation to come back once you get inflation back down to target at 2%. If you get CPI back to 2%, I think historically, I was looking at a model, I think macro output out, you tend to see more of the negative correlation between stocks and bonds. But from the current marketplace where we have this positive correlation where they rise and fall together, it's like pointless. What's the point? Like, yes, bonds rallied a lot, but look what the NASDAQ's done. Look what the Russell did. The Russell went from a 52-week low to a 52-week high in like five weeks. That's, That's crazy, right? Like, why would you want to own bonds when they're just basically replicating what the equity market's doing?
6: Sam, do you mind if I uh bring up that uh, Joe's basically hitting on the same question that I posed to uh you and Terrence and some others the other day, which was basically um what so so there's let me let me set the table for this a little bit so every day, basically for the last couple of weeks, you can see a Wall Street asset manager that is saying something like bonds are back, the sixty forty portfolio is back. Um, or 2024 is going to be the year of bonds. And I think those are actually different statements, by the way, to say 2024 is going to be a good year for bonds and to say the 60-40 portfolio is back. um, I think those are two different statements and we can pick that apart. But the point is you're seeing a a, a different large asset manager say something positive about bonds basically every day now. So what I was thinking was kind of along the lines of what Joe was just outlining was okay, fine. Bonds might very well be a positive performer in 2024. Um, as long as they don't keep rallying in the month of December, 2023, um, they're going to steal all the performance from 2024. But let, let's say whatever, December of this, this year plus 2024, they're a positive performer. That's not too shocking after, after 2021 was negative, 2022 was negative, right? So that's not too shocking that Bonds could do well in 2024 plus this month of December, But I think the more interesting questions are, one, what type of scenario would need to play out for bonds to be a positive performer while also outperforming other assets, whether that's stocks, real estate, gold, Bitcoin? So I would love to hear people's thoughts on what type of scenario has to play out for you to actually want to be heavily overweighted bonds in 2024 instead of other assets and then this question of the 60 40 portfolio again yeah 60 40 might do well in 2024 but that in my opinion doesn't mean that 60 40 is back as a set it and forget it buy and hold for years on end and it'll perform very well like it did for the last 20 to 30 years um, so i'd love to hear people's thoughts on that particularly you know what type of scenario has to play out for you to for bonds to not just be positive performer in 2024 but also to outperform other asset classes.
5: I can jump in quickly on that. Um, So my take on it is the only reason you would wanna own uh, like treasuries heading into 2024 is if you're absolutely convinced that we're headed into a recession. Uh, because then what happens is you get that deflationary impulse and then it's awesome to be long bonds. That's when you want to be in that. That's when it makes a great trade in a portfolio hedge. If you don't think that we're headed into a recession, you basically don't want to own uh bonds. The only reason now, and this is to Joe's point earlier, first of all, Joe, you brought up exactly the same point I was going to bring up. I was thinking of a uh, macro elf's chart in my head as well. When inflation is high, uh, then bonds and stocks are correlated. And by high, I mean basically greater than 3 or 4%. When inflation is below, uh, say, 3%, uh, then they're negatively correlated. So that's when it actually helps uh, your portfolio to have the 60-40 type portfolio. Um uh, if you want just income, then sure, we're, we're at a point now where it makes sense maybe, and, I, and I, I'm not talking treasuries, I'm talking personally, for, there are things that you can look at that provide higher levels of income, uh, but you're not in it for the trade, right? You're, you're looking for cash flows. So things that I think provide reasonable cash flows if we're not headed into recession, things like taxable municipal bonds, things like corporate debt, um, things like senior loans I, I mentioned earlier you can find yields on those things that range from like 7 to 12%, and I think they're relatively safe if we don't head into a recession. If we head into a recession, those things will tank, just so you know. Um, so, uh, But if you're not in the recessionary view, then they should be fine. Um, so just come in full circle. You only want to own bonds, I think, treasuries especially, if you think – we're headed into a recession. If not, um, they're going to underperform almost uh, you know any other risk asset. So it's kind of uh, dumb money or dead money, I would say. And,
7: and if we don't, to, to answer your question, John, if you don't end in, I agree with everything Jeff said, but if you don't end up in a recession, say you end up with a per, permanently sort of hot or hottish economy because of structural you know deficits and fiscal spending, fiscal dominance. Uh, rather than just owning bonds, like you know treasuries, uh, I would I would much rather own tips because I think tips are going to going to protect you against persistently higher CPI. You're going to protect that real um, real yield. So like that that's that's to me a better trade. Like if you if you are going to be more focused on you know for the long run in a in an economy with, that's not going into recession, you'd want to own tips.
6: Yeah, great, great thoughts from both you guys. So just to highlight what I think is a very critical um, thing that comes out of what what you guys just discussed is, you know, what what are the two main things that you need to forecast correctly in order to have the right asset allocation going forward? I think it's it's recession timing and severity, and then it's it's the path of CPI, and that's obviously easier said than done to forecast both of those things, but. You just you look back at the last couple of years and that was uh, people being wrong about the path of CPI. And I'm not saying it was easy to forecast it correctly, but the inflation being transitory crowd. I mean, that just kind of destroyed your expectations for what different asset classes did, because people just thought inflation's transitory. We are going to get a path of interest rates that's more similar to the Fed's dot plot in 2021. And it turned out inflation was not transitory. It was very sticky, very persistent. And that completely changed the uh, performance of of stocks and bonds. So it is pretty critical to get to forecast the path of CPI correctly. Um, Not easy, like I said. And I think this is also where just the idea of portfolio diversification, not putting all your eggs in one basket comes into play because if, if you could forecast these things correctly, then you know you don't you don't need to diversify. You just you know make one bet. But kind of like Dr. Jeff was saying, you can get safer cash flows in some of these different segments of the bond market. And yeah, if if you know that stocks are going to do well because we're not going to be in a recession and, and CPI is going to be low, then yeah, you could just own stocks and probably outperform. But if you want to hedge yourself because you recognize, okay, I don't know for sure that I'm correct about my CPI forecast and my recession forecast, maybe it does make sense for me to allocate some to stocks and some to these these other parts of the bond market that appear attractive. So I think all of that is just to say forecasting CPI and recession is is kind of absolutely critical here. It, It could make sense to allocate some to bonds. But I still am a believer now that the sixty forty portfolio, as we know it, where it returned whatever eight to ten percent on average per year for decades, I don't believe that is going to hold true going forward for the
1: next decade. I agree one hundred percent, John. Like you have to get inflation and growth forecasts right to be successful. But you asked, like, how would bonds outperform? in 2024. Dr. Jeff mentioned like the recession, and that's where you want to be. But I still see that as like a trade. And basically, the third component would be what's the central bank going to do? You know, what's the government central bank going to do in that scenario? And it's my opinion that it's the higher probability that they'll come in and try to stimulate things. And then on the back end of that, I could see stocks and Bitcoin just ripping and potentially could outperform. Uh, the bonds over the 12-month period, you know, bonds might outperform in the beginning. But if they signal that, if they come in and with the works and try to, you know, keep everything afloat, then I think that Bitcoin and stocks will rip. I mean, you just saw how this market just responds to even messaging that the Fed's going to, you know, cut rates. I mean, if they actually came out and did that in during like a recessionary impulse, deflationary impulse, then... That's what I think would happen. And I think in the end, come December 2024, I think stocks and Bitcoin could actually outperform bonds over the year if that occurred. So I think that's like the third component. What's the central bank going to do? And that's almost like impossible to to forecast, (laughs) unfortunately. We live in this opaque system, but that's kind of my take. That's a great point, and that, and that gets
6: into what we were highlighting before about the dot plot, and, and even their commentary is hard to parse through, and like you said, Sam, they don't even necessarily have a good sense of whether their own predictions and statements are going to hold true weeks or months later, so um, it's not easy. That, that's why, um, why there are professionals who do this asset management thing for a living.
3: Peter? Do they, do they even care, though? I mean, isn't it more just about a narrative for them?
1: Do they care about what?
3: Whether they're, whether, whether they're, they're actually um, correct. I mean, they, they, they really care more about the narrative that they're putting out rather than whether or not, um, you know, what's going on is reality, right?
7: Yeah, so just to put some color on that Peter, this is a quote from The Minutes. We see great value in issuing the dot plot for the purpose of giving the market forward expectations guidance about targets that are in the range of possibilities by FOMC members and participants. That's a quote. They're just basically saying we want to give forward guidance. This is what we think is going to happen, but we're not
1: necessarily predicting it. This is (laughs) – I mean, this is why I think it's funny, though, because if it's used as forward guidance, this is why the banks got in so much trouble – in june 2021 when the fed's dot plot was saying they expected rates to be near zero all the way out to 2024 and they loaded up on bonds and then the fed did the exact opposite and jacked interest rates on them and now you had you know the banking crisis and you had the btfp and you have all these unrealized losses because of the fed that dot plot being used for forward guidance i mean it's just silly
7: but, but are, are people actually trading off the dot plot? Like, I mean, that's, that's crazy to me. Like, well, it if seems that, if so it, ridiculous.
1: <laughs> well, if it's used for forward guidance, you know, I think that was the the narrative coming out of the Fed in the summer of 2021. Like, hey, we're not going to raise rates on you guys.
7: It seems like, like you should hey. almost do the opposite of whatever the forward
3: guidance is. <laughs> <to be> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's so true. I mean, okay. Can one of you explain the dot plot to me? I'm as a, as if I'm, I'm I identify as a golden retriever. So can we dumb it down? It, it is really a kind of a complicated uh, thing for me to be able to wrap my head around. I mean, Joe explained it
1: pretty easily uh, early on. Peter, were you listening? Were you listening, Peter?
3: Apparently, it wasn't an easy enough explanation. <laughs> I don't know if Joe wants to do it again. Sit, Peter. I was sit. <laughs> Peter sit. Peter, listen.
1: No, basically uh, they ask the FOMC officials, it's just a survey, of where they think interest rates should be over the next coming years. Um, it's anonymous, so they just ask all the FOMC members, you know, where do you think interest rates are going to be? over, Or where should they be over the next couple of years? And they plot out where they think it's going to be over 2023, 2024, and beyond. And it's just used as like a forecast. But but they say it shouldn't be used as a forecast. This is what... Yeah. So, yeah. so this is Ryan Sweeney. Uh, from, he's from
7: uh, Oxford. He basically describes He says, to be date, more data dependent, the Fed needs a lot of flexibility. The dot plot isn't a forecast. It's certainly not a commitment in any way. Interest rate pro- uh, projections change as quickly as the economy changes. However, there is utility in providing the current expectation of market participants, realizing that the dot plot gets changed pretty quickly. It's a
6: sentiment indicator. It's just a sentiment indicator. Yeah. Does that help, Peter? Peter, I also just sent you a screenshot of the dot plot. I think pictures worth a thousand words here, so you can see the x-axis is the projection at the year end of twenty four, twenty five, twenty six, and then longer term after twenty twenty six. And each of the dots reflects one of the F- each of the FOMC members. Projections for the meeting date in De- uh, as of December thirteenth was their was their meeting, and then and people make a curve out of it and say, oh, look, based on these dots, this is kind of what Fed expectations are for rates going forward. Um, but as as we're kind of uncovering here, it, it's not very wise to take this as oh, this is what rates are going to be <laughs> in the future. There are many things that can change. Think of it like this. You ever
7: been to like a fortune teller or someone who looks into like a crystal ball, Peter, to tell you like the future? It's basically like that, like Madame Lestrade, like basically looks into the crystal ball and says, this is what I foresee for your future. You will not get hit by a bus next week. Like that's basically it.
3: I'm going to stick to my thesis that uh, bonds and uh, all of this crap is just way too complicated and volatile. And I'm going to just purchase Bitcoin.
6: Northman trader Sven Henrik does a good job. I haven't seen his tweets in a bit, but I I recall him in the past. He does a great job highlighting what the Fed's dot plot was, you know, a year or two ago, and then he compares it to reality, and and they are often very, very different things.
5: Hey, uh, how come nobody's talking about liquidity?
6: Why is nobody talking about this? Do you remember that Twitter bot response period in time a year or so ago?
1: That China news does seem significant, Dr. Jeff. They're pumping.
5: Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. (laughs) Let's talk about liquidity. I just posted something on it.
1: Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it, buddy.
5: (laughs) You know, you know where my mind always is. And I know that Joe, this is, a Joe and I agree on like 99% of uh, financial and monetary related things, but this might be one where we diverge a bit. But, you know, <clears throat> take it. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, but I find it very interesting that U.S. net liquidity is, you know how I talk about this all the time, it's been range bound since April, 2022. For the first time since then, it's actually trying to poke above its range Uh, where it is today. And I would say um, not coincidentally, uh, U.S. small cap stocks are poking at uh, above the range of the high that they hit way back in April of 2022. Um, Why does this matter? In my opinion, and people who are way smarter than me uh, disagree with me on this, but here's my opinion. Um, I think there is a strong, non-coincidental correlation between U.S. net liquidity and U.S.-based assets, uh, namely U.S. small cap stocks, uh, I think, are the best proxy. Mid caps are also good. Um, the S&P 500 would be as well, but because they have the magnificent seven tech stocks in them, uh, it gets distorted. But that's a, a neither here nor there. So what, what is this, why does this matter as a person who watches trends? we're either at a local peak for U.S. net liquidity and it's going to turn lower from this point, probably like as of today and start turning lower next week. If it does, I would expect U.S. small caps and mid cap stocks to roll over as well uh, and to start you know, heading heading lower. However, if it truly is breaking out to a new high and it holds and then continues to head higher, I think it bodes very well for U.S. small cap and mid cap stocks, as well as basically an equal weighted S&P 500. And then similar to that, but different, uh, Global M2 is near uh, its highs as well. Global M2, by the way, has been range bound since April 2021. So that's, uh, if my math is right, that's about 32 months of range bound Global M2 Why does that matter? Because as global M2 increases, that tends to mean that global assets like Bitcoin, like gold, uh, like uh, the mega cap tech stocks, um, they tend to go higher as it rises and fall uh, as it uh, contracts. If global M2 continues to surge higher, I would expect these assets to continue to perform uh, quite well. Uh, in the near term. And if it rolls over from its near uh, highs, uh, local highs, uh, then I would anticipate that it's going to roll over. So those are the things that I watch. I personally think of it as like a cheat sheet to what asset prices are going to do. I know people disagree with me. I know that technically it shouldn't work like this, but I'm just saying that it does. And I can't, I can't explain why very well, other than from like a golden retriever, uh, you know, kind of level. Um, but, uh, that, that's what I'm watching. And I think, so we're at very people who don't trade, just mock this kind of, so you're saying it could go up or down, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, but I'm telling you we're at a pivot point right now. So it's either going to continue going higher, which bodes well, or it's going to roll over, uh, and, and bode poorly for these assets that I mentioned. So anyways, that's what I'm watching. I think it's very interesting. I think they're the most important charts in finance at the moment.
6: And
5: what was the tie-in to when China? The, so China, you know, because because if they're doing liquidity injections, that affects kind of global M2 in liquidity uh, in, um, rising or falling as well. So it, as, a, as a major global player, if one of the major uh, nation states is injecting liquidity, that's going to affect M2 uh, in a sizable uh, way. So so I'm watching that. So, so we're right at the cusp for both of those. Reasons. And I will tell you, I'm actually more concerned that it's going to roll over. Why? Because lots of stocks, based on their shorter-term momentum, uh charts look like they're way overbought right now and due for a pullback and um the dollar which has a had a really powerful move lower looks to me like it's uh, at a local bottom and it's oversold and it may move higher in the near term so i'm not personally overly optimistic on risk assets in the coming week or two um but we'll see these are very short-term perspectives so take it with a grain of salt
6: gotcha yeah and i i see you posted something about this jeff um I'm seeing the headline. China's central bank injects record monthly amount into money markets. Um, yeah, I'll have to read Burr. into that one more. <laughs> it's cold in here.
1: Dr. Jeff, you're such a liquidity junkie. Such a liquidity junkie over there. Thanks, bro.
5: Hey, I, I will start a swan <laughs> liquidity business with you if the swan bonds doesn't
1: <laughs> Well, Lynn Alden does oh, talk f- about how global M2 and Bitcoin, the correlation there. She follows that very closely. Hey, Jeff, can you talk about when liquidity is not the most
2: important? You said right now it is, but implying that sometimes it's not. Sure. So So, outside of war or something, what's an example?
5: So a great example of when it is uh, divergent, at least in the near term, is during a recession. So like if an economy is plunging into a recession and markets are following suit, like equities are getting just destroyed, similar to fourth quarter 2008, early 2009, What's happening then is the government see that happening. Usually, they're doing. Usually, the treasury market is locked up, and there's not enough liquidity. So they quickly, rapidly pump in massive amounts of, of uh, liquidity in order to try to you know free up the gears. So you have a major divergence, and these divergences are super powerful and usually really ugly and hard to live through. Um, but they're setting the stage for the next wave higher uh, of such risk assets. So. We could actually be and I want to be clear, like I'm, I'm bullish at the moment. Uh, it depends what time frame we're talking about. Very near term, I think we get a pullback. But I still think the the macro currently is is in place for generally uh, a bullish move higher for risk assets and for Bitcoin. Um, but this could sort of be the, the party before the storm, though, as well. Right. So so if we have kind of a late 2008 type moment. Um, bond yields may be signaling that we're headed into a recession, like the global uh, economies are going to pull the U.S. down. I, I actually don't believe that, but it's possible that's what's happening. And we're seeing a, a blow off top in risk assets uh, and in Bitcoin. So that's just one thing to be cognizant of. If we're there, uh, you could you could see a pretty impressive pullback. And then that would force the Fed's hand. It would force them to suddenly you know, add uh, significant liquidity into the system to quit doing their uh, balance sheet runoff. Uh, But you'll get that divergence in the near term. I love divergences when I see that from a trading perspective. That usually means big moves are coming. For instance, I'll just give two cases in point, three cases in point. Three stocks that I watch, and this is not investment advice of any kind, but but I, so I'm i looking at Apple, uh, I, which everybody owns, uh, CleanSpark, which is a Bitcoin miner that has performed really well, uh, and Shopify, which is a, a smaller tech company uh, based out of uh, Canada, a great company. I love it. I, I'm a fan of all three of these uh, uh, assets. All of these are showing negative divergence right now, meaning they're hitting local highs uh, uh, but their momentum indicators are rolling over. So meaning that their momentum is getting weaker and weaker as the stock goes higher and higher. To me, that's sort of like if you you know, launch a rocket up into the atmosphere, like one of those old school water uh, cannon rockets. If you guys remember those, you pump it up and then it shoots higher. It eventually just sort of runs out of uh, propellant, runs out of juice, and, and then it rolls over and, and crashes down. And all three of those stocks have those dynamics going on for them right now. So I'm expecting in the near term for those to um, give in to their short-term momentum indicators and roll over. When you see that on a macro scale, meaning that uh, asset prices are moving higher while uh, liquidity is falling, um, to me, that says we're in for a big correction. And then vice versa. If you see stock prices plummet like they did in uh, 2008, early 2009, but liquidity uh, screaming higher, that's a, another, uh, it's a positive divergence. It's something you want to see, and that's the time where you'd want to go along in those kind of assets. Hopefully that makes sense. Sorry to get so into the weeds.
3: I just wanted to say that, uh, Dr. Jeff, I do not own Apple except for my MacBook, my iPad, and my phone. You're ahead of your time, Peter. What can I say? I actually got really lucky, Dr. Jeff. I bought Apple in 1998 at uh, $21 no a share cares. and did not uh, sell it until February of 2020 when I got debanked by Swab. And by the time I was able to collect my uh, capital, uh, it was March 28th, and I reinjected it all back into the market. So sometimes it's better to be lucky than good.
2: So you're doing really well.
3: I'm doing really well now, uh, Terrence, because I am 95 to 98% Bitcoin, depending upon the price. That's why I'm doing very well. I'm very comfortable um, because I'm not dealing with any of these complicated macro things that people are talking about now.
1: Peter's happy. He's calm. He's holding that Bitcoin.
3: I've I've simplified my life. I mean, I mean, i you know, it's 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 not for everybody. Different people have different circumstance. Um, different people, you know, need to do different things based on their own unique circumstance. In mine, um, I'm just holding. I'm just holding Bitcoin cash and a little bit of art. That's it.
2: You're
0: Peter holding well, Bitcoin, well,
3: cash.
2: You hold Bitcoin cash. <laughs> Bitcoin cash.
3: Bitcoin. And USD and a
5: little bit of art. (laughs) Peter is well moisturized and sitting in an ice bath as we speak. Yeah, I'm thinking about that meme. I don't know if you guys know what it is. That Dr. Jeff.
1: Peter, you brought up being debanked. It just reminded me I was at Unconfiscated one in Las Vegas and I was eating dinner at this bar, at this restaurant. It just so happens that next to me got struck up this conversation with this couple and this lady after t- talking to her, found out that she's basically an heiress of a very, very, very large retailer um, in the United States, very large. And she, she's not- <laughs> no, she was with uh with her partner,
3: is but there, we were talking her about last her. name Walton.
1: <laughs> no comment, but we were, uh, we were talking to her and she, was like, started talking to her about Bitcoin. Obviously. And she said, you know, I, I bought a little Bitcoin. My son's really interested in Bitcoin. And my bank, you know, I tried to send money. And they basically censored me and told me that I couldn't access my money. And I'm still in talks with them. And it made me realize that my money is not, you know, my money when it's held in these banks. And now I've been looking at Bitcoin. So I think it's like uh, fate that I ran into you guys today talking about Bitcoin and I think that wealthy people are starting to understand that through all these actions over the last couple years and just kind of the increased censorship that you're seeing at the banking level where they ask you tons of questions whenever you want to do anything with your money it seems like wealthy people are starting to understand it and then they're starting to see Bitcoin as a way to kind of uh, alleviate that risk for their wealth. And so the conversation was was very interesting in Vegas.
3: I, Sam, I'd really love to know what a person like that you're talking about who's an, an heir of Walmart and and is a Walton, I'd really love to know <laughs> what a little bit of a little bit of money is to that person because it's clearly not going to be what I'm thinking.
1: Well, you do think about that because there's not that much bitcoin out there. And a little bit, a small percentage of somebody that wealthy. I mean, math gets kind of stupid.
3: Maybe that, that's the uh, whale that uh, keeps uh, keeps doing daily DCAs in the hundreds I of millions that of was dollars. Too. Say again, Terrence.
1: I thought that was you.
3: Nope.
1: It was just interesting because we did bring up any of those topics at all. We just said that we were into Bitcoin and then she got very excited and she brought up all those problems with her bank and she knew that there's a problem.
3: Um, I Sam, so. it's, it's what we've talked about many times in here. It's because there's a huge number of people in uh, the United States, in our communities. I hate using that word in our communities that, that see the problem and they know there's a solution, but they don't have anybody to talk to about it. And that's why it's so important for people like yourself to just be having those conversations that somebody else can, can overhear um, or to encourage someone to talk about, you know, what, what their issues are so that we can, uh, all of us who are Bitcoiners, can provide them with a potential solution that, you know, they can look at and uh, make that determination themselves.
1: Yeah, they say that Bitcoin doesn't have a marketing team, but the uh, traditional banking system is a pretty good marketing team for Bitcoin.
6: Stephanie Kelton is the best Bitcoin marketer in existence. Yeah, John, did you get blocked by her? I did. I did. I got blocked (laughs) by her. Blocked by Claudia (laughs) Assam now as well. Um, I definitely had some snarky comments at Stephanie Kelton. Um,
2: It's a couple. (laughs)
6: I mean, I was making light of the fact that MMTers make these insane claims like you cannot have an economy without government deficit spending. So Stephanie Kelton would post a picture of whiskey or something, and I would say, thank God for deficit spending because it allows whiskey to exist. Um, She eventually got tired of that and uh, blocked me. Um, But I did find (laughs) one other thing real quick since we're talking about Kelton and MMT. I thought this was fascinating. There, there's an MMT guy. You know, he's got hashtag MMT in his bio on Twitter. It's in his handle. Big pro MMT guy. And he posts a week or two ago, and he says, Bitcoin folks should thank Uncle Sam for the ample cash flows that supported its rise this year. Learn MMT. and I was just absolutely amazed at this, that he can connect the dots, that, you know, he's he's saying Uncle Sam, and this is... Obviously, referring to the government in a very broad way, um, which is fine. It's Twitter. You have to make a point succinctly. But he's connecting the dots that the government, the Fed, the Treasury, everyone else is causing monetary expansion and that is causing Bitcoin to rise. Yet somehow he fails to make the point that that means Bitcoin has value, has significance. I just I couldn't believe that he stopped at that point of understanding and instead of going towards Bitcoin, he pivots and he's like, MMT is the answer. It's just incredible to me.
1: That's like extremely bullish to me. I always said like the really a bearish narrative for Bitcoin is like sound monetary policy and government policy in terms of spending. And uh, I think that trend is, is going the opposite direction, which is very good for Bitcoin. If they wanna go MMT, Bitcoin's gonna to go to the moon.
6: Yeah, I, I agree with that. When when you think about like their cases for Bitcoin, one of them is austerity in, in terms of central in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. Um, and you know, maybe another is like some sort of fatal flaw that calls into question the security of Bitcoin or the supply of Bitcoin, something crazy like that. But yeah, austerity by the government would, would be a problem for Bitcoin if you don't get the financial crisis and the response to the financial crisis, you probably don't get Bitcoin. Um, it, there just wouldn't have been enough of a motivation to design a system that runs counter to the existing system. So, yeah, it's just kind of incredible to me that the MMT could connect some of the dots, but not all of the dots.
1: Yeah, you saw the MMTers get a little bit more quiet over the last couple of years. You know, it was always like deficits don't matter. And one of the arguments against MMT was always, well, what about inflation? What if inflation rises? And they were always like, well, we'll figure that out when it comes, you know, we'll raise taxes to bring it back down. And uh, obviously inflation did rise substantially. Deficits do matter. Uh, And the MMTers just don't seem as loud as they were you know, around 2019, 2020. Uh, at least that's what I see. Can,
6: can I say one more thing about this? Uh, as you guys know, MMT is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. What I've found in talking, ex- exchanging comments with these MMTers is that one of the things that you just alluded to, Sam, it, it seems very fundamental to their worldview and their ideology is this idea that the period from 2009 until 2021 was, quote unquote, low inflation. You you hear Mosler talk about that directly. He'll say, oh, QE did not alter the path of inflation. You know, it's been proven. You know, we saw it because CPI was only 2%. And, you know, they ran a study in Japan and the U.S. And it proved that QE didn't alter the path of inflation. And, And they hang their hat on that. Because they kind of, uh, they need that, right? They, they're all about manipulating the money supply and the monetary system. And if it's just going to cause inflation, even an average person who doesn't care about economics is going to sniff that out and say, hey, you, you don't really have a sound um, philosophy here if, if what you're doing is just going to cause inflation. So they need that to be true. They, they need to be able to say 2009 to 2021 was a period of low inflation. And, and I would push back on that for two huge reasons. One is that you could argue even 2 to 3% inflation, that means you lose 50% of your purchasing power over 25 to 35 years. I think you're just, they're just arbitrarily choosing the word low inflation. I don't know why we would call that low inflation. Uh, most people in this space know that the 2% inflation target by central banks is completely random, completely arbitrary, just picked out of thin air. So they decide to say that 2% is low inflation. I think that's just untrue. Then if you look at what inflation is, if you add in other things, such as the cost of college, such as cost of homes, such as health insurance premiums, those things have gone up more like 4 to 5% per year since 2009. So that's just to say that I don't think CPI tells the whole picture. And so if you now you start to say okay quote unquote inflation was more like 4 to 5% for 2009 to 2021 that certainly does not seem like low inflation to me. And then I guess it's three points not two. The third one would be he makes the statement that QE didn't alter the path of inflation. They're arbitrarily anchoring to zero because if you didn't have QE we undoubtedly would have had deflation. So, it, it, you have to compare it to the counterfactual. Without QE, if you would have had deflation, and then with QE, let, let's say it's zero, it, the, the inflation is the difference between those two things. You have to compare it to the counterfactual, not to zero. So, three different ways that their claim of 2009 to 2021 was a period of low inflation and that QE didn't alter the path of inflation. It's just completely wrong and i hope that demonstrates that their whole ideology is just it's a house built on sand their their fundamental assumptions are just completely wrong
7: well john why do you believe uh, that without qe we would have had deflation
6: with without you think absent qe and all of that stimulus in the market through 2000 the the 2010s you think we would have not had deflation
7: well now you're you're changing the goalposts, because you're saying without with all that stimulus, which I assume you mean fiscal stimulus, which I agree. I think fiscal stimulus, TARP, the bailouts of the banks; those were very impactful. I don't think QE did really anything. I think it's an ineffective policy, and that's why they're they're increasingly abandoning it. Even the Fed is uh, saying it's it's ineffective. I mean, look, just 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 to give you some context, we've done effectively one point two trillion dollars worth of. Uh, of, of QT. Um, and, you know, even despite that, inflation is higher than uh, well, inflation has, has come down. But the, the rate of change of inflation, it doesn't have any correlation with the QT. I mean, it's it's not they're not driving one another. They're driving maybe asset prices. There's some relationship there. But the notion that that we would be in deflation without QE seems one without any evidence.
6: Well, first of all, I would include asset prices in a measure of inflation. I think that's another flaw to the way people look at CPI. They say, "Oh, look, CPI wasn't going up, but asset prices were." That that's that's part of inflation. Um, I would how, say, how are
7: asset prices part of inflation?
6: Uh, Consumer
7: prices don't
6: include asset prices. The CPI, does correct? Include- that's just that's just an yeah. arbitrary definition. Uh, why why would we own if you look at monetary expansion? Why would we exclude asset prices? If you pump up the price of homes. If certain policies pump up the price of homes or stocks, you can, you can decide to not look at that and just say, I'm going to look at CPI, but that's just someone having a narrow view of prices.
7: Well, homes are a different story, and there's plenty of policies that I think uh, pump up tax policies, et cetera. Um, put it this way. There are numerous variables that created a favorable environment for um, for home prices, right? Subsidies from the government, taxation, numerous things. So to isolate QE itself and say that our housing boom that we've had—I mean, demographics obviously also influence housing prices. Things that you know are not just monetary policy, but to like isolate and say QE. If we didn't have QE, we would have had deflation. Well, I mean, we've had recessions in the past where there was no QE. QE is a re- recent phenomenon, and. And we, we didn't have uh, as bad in some of those recessions, some we have way worse, right? Like, because we didn't have fiscal authority. So I guess the question I have just to stay focused is like, how do you isolate just QE versus all the other stuff that was done to to, to juice the economy, like fiscal spending?
6: Yeah, you, you can't. The, the answer is you can't. These are not controlled experiments in a lab where you say, now let's run it again and remove QE. But you also can't. Separate out QE from the fiscal. I mean, what what is what did QE allows to happen? T- twenty twenty is the best example. The Treasury it issued however many trillions of debt. The central bank bought th- their balance sheet treasuries plus MBS in- increased by three trillion over the course of three months. That that allowed the fiscal to happen in a much larger way. And just generally speaking, QE is part of a monetary expansionary policy. It often is. Sorry, I kicked the drawer here. Um, it often is tied in with fiscal, for sure. And, and I agree with you that you can't just separate them out um, based on the way that central banks and the, the fiscal authorities work. But just generally speaking, QE allows for more monetary expansion. You have base money. You have broad money. But that's, there certain-
7: but that's different, though, John. I'm sorry. Like different, you- different than what? So, so Lynn Alden breaks this down, and, and and she does it impeccably. I mean, it's one of her greatest pieces. I think everybody should go read it. And she was saying that countries that did extraordinary amounts of QE. Had some of the lowest inflation in the recent cycle, including again. But it's it's low
6: low relative to what? You're just saying low relative to zero. My point is no 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 no
7: no no no. no. I'm saying low relative to other countries. For example, Japan. Japan's the mother of all QE, and they had some of the lowest inflation. Uh, So again, I don't disagree that the fiscal authority drives it, which is ultimately Lynn's conclusion. She says like QE you know and, and you can ask her about this if you ever want i mean she'll tell you qe without a fiscal yeah i'm not staff, i'm
6: not disagreeing with any of this i'm not, i'm not sure maybe i'm not getting the point across i'm not just my point is you said undoubtedly without qe
7: we would have had deflation and i say well that doesn't that's not undoubtedly that's that's you have to look at what was the fiscal authority doing because you know the the balance sheet expansion of the fed uh, is driven you know primarily by the fact that Treasury issuance went through the roof.
6: Yeah, it was, yes, but okay, I'm QE in the way that we got it. Without that, you don't get as much fiscal. That, uh, that would clearly change the path of inflation towards less inflation, which I will call deflation.
1: It appears we're at a standstill.
7: No, no, I, I, you know, I don't want to be. <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, I just have a different. I have a difference of opinion. I think QE is basically meaningless. It's swapping bank reserves for treasuries. It's actually anything. It's probably deflation. Probably, probably deflationary. But
6: how okay, QE in a vacuum, maybe, and we can talk about how that works. How QE allows the the expansion to happen? How do you think the Fed? Ends up borrowing and spending three trillion in 2020 when the treasury markets froze up without QE.
7: So, they first of all, what were what were treasury yields at that point? Treasury yields before QE even even began fall precipitously. They were some of the lowest in history, um, historically certainly some of the lowest in history before the, even the beginning of QE. And what did QE do? If you look at when QE began it was coincident with the bottom of the treasury market, right? Basically, uh, bottom of the yields market. Basically, as QE began, yields rose. So to make the claim that somehow QE facilitated the issuance when we exactly see yields rise at that point is 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 sort of counterintuitive. Why Why would QE... Uh, be be permitting the treasury market to issue a ton of debt when it was already at historically low rates. Now, the problem then why, then
6: why did they do Q, so? This this can all be you can look at it very myopically, like on a week to week or month to month time horizon. But you would have to look at it on a longer term time horizon. The real answer here is then why did they do QE in twenty twenty at all? Very if you Look at the if you look at the balance sheet over time, the path of it is undeniable. So if the things you're saying are true. Then that if QE doesn't matter, then QT doesn't matter, and then they could shrink their balance sheet back to 2008 levels. So then why don't they actually do it?
7: QT doesn't matter. Um, It doesn't. It's it's not a big deal. Um, What 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 happened in 2020? Okay, is that. They needed to signal again more of the psychological manipulation that they were backstopping everything. Remember the swap lines, which were almost barely utilized. Uh, There's traffic like, like equivalent to like basically the traffic Walmart does, the, the volume Walmart does in a single day. Um, barely utilized swap lines, but we're there. Barely utilized some of the programs. Of, I mean, they they bought you know MBS right, bought quote unquote um, when those per- securities had already been purchased. They were already on banks balance sheets. Um, And banks were already pulling back. It was all a signaling channel to basically say, we got this. We're backing everything with unlimited quote unquote money printing, which is not even money printing. It's just swapping bank reserves for treasuries. And by the way, those treasuries are not as liquid and not as deep as the treasury market for collateral purposes. So it's like you're not actually helping the situation, but you're trying to signal to people that it's okay. The Fed is acting. It's all just a bunch of kabuki theater. It doesn't actually drive banks to lend, which is how real money gets into the economy. But you know what it did is the stimulus, right? Like Treasury, the, 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 the Treasury basically giving everyone free checks is going to drive, uh, going to drive inflation. That that's the key ing- anywhere in the world. Any historical example, and, and by the way, this is uh, a very detailed study that was put together um, by McKinsey, where they showed that QE itself does not create. Consumer price increases. What QE does is it inf- it has a mild relationship with asset prices, which is correct, and I can see that point. But what actually drives the, the 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 consumer price impulse is handing out people checks and giving them, you know, that is money printer go berserk. That's the Treasury borrowing money and saying, here you go, you didn't earn this money, but you can go spend it, um, and in the economy to stimulate. And and that that that's just the difference. I mean, and I I hear your point about like like okay, so like QE is somehow influencing liquidity conditions in the treasury market. But look at why there are liquidity conditions in the treasury market. Liquidity conditions are because people didn't want to give up their treasuries. That's why tre- treasuries were at 0.3%. No one wanted to sell. So you had these wide you know, bid-to-ask spreads in the market where they would blow out, particularly for off-the-run illiquid treasuries.
6: Yeah, there's definitely points in time where there is demand for treasuries. I'm not in the camp of like, look, nobody cares about treasuries. No, people are going to stop buying it tomorrow. That, that's too extreme for sure. I, I don't believe that. But a lot of this can just be sorted out by we're, we're going to see what's going to happen. If, if QE doesn't matter and if QT doesn't matter, then the Fed can shrink its balance sheet while U.S. debt to GDP goes to 180 percent over the next 20 to 30 years. And U.S. debt in nominal terms goes to I don't know, $140 trillion. If If everything you're saying is true, Joe, then the US central bank does not need to become a bigger buyer of treasuries. So this will be proven out in the coming years. They've,
7: they've run it down $1.2 trillion. What what, is, what in your mind is going to take it to, to have an influence? What, is, what, is, what do you think? will When will the quote unquote break happen as people have been predicting for two years?
6: Uh Predicting when the break happens is different than making the statement that over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years, the Fed will be a buyer of treasuries. And by the way, I will just say this. This is something that for some reason went very underreported. The CBO made a forecast for what the Fed's balance sheet, how many treasuries they would hold on the balance sheet in the year 2033. And they said it would be 7000000000000 $7 and change trillion. The Fed currently holds 4.8 trillion of Treasuries. So, for some reason, the CBO, the entity that looks at what the path of U.S. Fiscal, uh, federal debt is, they believe that the Fed's going to add three or four, three trillion of Treasuries, or two and a half trillion of Treasuries. So, again, we, these things will be proven out over time. We shall see.
7: Yeah, I appreciate your thoughts. Likewise, Joe.
1: Well, we will see. I think that's a good place to end it. As much as I love you guys talking about QE. Could listen for hours. But uh, we're out of time. So thanks for joining Cafe Bitcoin. We talk about Bitcoin every single weekday here on Cafe Bitcoin. And we appreciate your support. It's brought by spawn.com, Bitcoin financial services company. Go check it out. Uh, Also check out Pacific Bitcoin. Tickets are on sale. Uh, you can use the promo code SIL for 20% off. And if you pay with Bitcoin, you get an additional 21% off. So go check out PacificBitcoin.com. If you're interested in coming to the festival next year, uh, you can meet some of the people on stage. I'll be there. John will be there. I don't know about some of the other other people, Terrence, Peter. Um, But thank you for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, Go touch some grass, pack some sats. And we appreciate your support. Everyone have a great, great Friday.